Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hey, Reg, how you doing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do sound a little more nasal than I did last week, don't I? You called it. You called it last week when we started the podcast. You were like, do you have a cold? And I was like, uh, no, I was right on the edge. I didn't know if I did. I know, didn't know if I was going to. I didn't know if I had. I do. <laughs> I've been, I don't have a lot of other symptoms, but I am congested. Thankfully, no sore throats, no other, no any other things. I've been taking some Robitussin and just really blowing my, I just, I blew my nose so hard just before now. I think a piece of cartilage came out. <laughs> but I've done podcasts with much less of a voice than this, so we'll be fine. I'll just have to <clears throat> every so often and, and swallow a few times. I should have some water here with me, but whatever. You ready to go? Good. Let's do it. Uh, put in the books, 403, episode 403. Here we go. Star, smile, strong. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Pod. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com. Or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. Now, don't forget, it's always great that you listen, but it's almost as important that you get out there and spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. If you like what you hear, don't forget you can go to WGNRadio.com, go to the podcast section, hit the prompt for this podcast, and then stand back, get ready, prepare. You will be overrun with podcast after podcast after podcast. All there for your entertainment, value, and pleasure. Just keep scrolling down and loading more. Lots in there. What the heck there should be. This is episode number 403. 403. Uh, yes, if you are listening, uh, well, you are listening. If you listened last week, uh, you heard um, that my voice was getting just a tad, just a tad nasal, and I didn't know whether I was uh, going to get a full blown cold 
if I was going to be able to to shuck it off, maybe it was just, you know, a little congested and the congestion would go away. Uh, well, <clears throat> it hasn't. It's stuck around for a week. Um, it's actually a little better than it was late last week for me. And uh, I was grateful because I, I did a... Uh, a live presentation, a play, just a one-day thing. But I was on stage, and I had to project, and I didn't want to sound nasally. And so I was taking all those over-the-counter things, Robitussins and and whatever else they have to um, to you know loosen things up, shooting some saline up there. I need to get one of those neti pots. Is that what it is? Or that navage, whatever it is, to... To clean that out, but I, it is funny. I was I was shooting some of that, uh, you know, just saline up each nostril and and blowing, and wow, it's amazing what comes out just by loosening it up a little. So, thankfully, that event went off very well. No one knew that I had a cold, but I'm I'm still feeling uh, the nasal. I'm hearing the nasal sound and feeling a little congested, but thankfully, no other symptoms. But uh, but you know uh, I've done I've done podcasts much sicker and with much less of a voice than this so we'll be fine. Um, hey, once again it's the reality of this podcast. You know I'm not having my voice uh, altered in any way so that it'll sound normal. You know what? It's February. I caught a cold and I'm nasal. What am I going to do? That's the way it is, right? I did go about two weeks ago, uh, about a week, well, a week and a half ago now. Uh, I went to, well, maybe two weeks. I went to a friend's house, uh, all day kind of a hangout type of thing. And there were a lot of kids. There were a lot of people and, and about four or five kids there. And that's probably where I got it because that was a Saturday night. And by Monday or Tuesday, I started to feel a little clogged. And my wife was feeling it as well. So one of us got it. And then she may have gotten it first. I don't know. But I was I was feeling just a tinge of it when I recorded last week's podcast. But um, now hopefully I'm, I'm on the other end of it. But um, bear with me. So what I wanted to talk about today, uh, you know I love music. I just been a fan of music forever, as long as I can remember. What the heck, my nickname is Elton Jim, right? I've been to more than 500 and some. I should look at that count now. I, I counted all my ticket stubs. <laughs> what, did, what did we do over COVID, right? We all tried to find things. I, I did go back, and I have, all, I have my box of, 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 I would say, 99.9% of the ticket stubs of concerts I've gone to. There may be a few here and there that... Um, got lost over the years. But for the most part, I always kept them in a box, and, and they, they were prized possessions to me. And so I have most of the uh, the live events that I've gone to, uh, and I've got a whole other group for, you know, live you know theater events and things like that. But concerts, I think, is over. When I did the count, I think it was over 500. I, I think I've got it written down somewhere. That's, that's what I – what did you do over COVID, Jim? Well, that's what I did. But then I haven't kept up with that count because I certainly went to, once uh, concerts started to open up, I went to several in 2021 and 2022 and 2023. So the uh, the number is uh, 
has certainly gone up, and I'm sure I'll be adding more this year. But um, so I love music, and uh, I've always kept up with the history of music, the contemporary music, you name it. Um, I've had I have I had at one point over I think three or four thousand CDs. I had you know hundreds of of albums, and then I converted my like everybody did in the eighties, converted my album collection to CD. So I had a ton, a ton of CDs. And on my iPod, which does anybody even know what that is anymore? Remember that? That was a cool thing about 20 years ago. <laughs> I have 24,000 songs on my iPod, basically from my downloaded, most of them from my CD collection. I, I downloaded most of those by hand. I certainly bought a few here and there, uh, you know, from the Apple store and things like that. But for the most part, I downloaded almost my entire uh, CD collection into uh, into my iPod. <laughs> so uh, uh, suffice it to say, uh, more than 500 concerts, 215 of those Elton John. Con- I think I'm trying to remember now if I have to go back and look. I don't know if the 500 concerts were in addition to the 215 Elton shows or if they, the 500 and some were combined Elton and other artists. I don't know. I, I, I've been to a lot of concerts in my life. <laughs> I really have. Um, but suffice it to say, I love music. And... Um, so uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, the Grammy Awards uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'll be honest, and I'm, I know this is no great revelation. I'm not uh, pretending to be the only one. Uh, this is a common refrain uh, of of people over fifty. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to really keep up with or get into the current pop music scene. Uh, rock, as I've said many times, rock and roll for all intents and purposes. Uh, as much as Pete Townsend, the Who said, uh, you know, long live rock. And uh, in another tricky day, Pete Townsend also wrote, rock and roll will never die. You know, this is no social crisis. This is you having fun. No crisis. Boy, that's gutsy to sing with a voice like that. Hmm, sorry about that. I love music. I love music. <laughs> Any kind of music. Long as it's swinging. <laughs> I'm so happy to be in complete harmony. I love you, girl. <laughs> I love music. Was that the OJs? I think so. Anyway. Uh, so... It's hard to keep up, you know, and I don't I don't make I don't make any excuses for it. I'm not I'm not sitting out there proud to say, oh, the music today. Look, uh, the music today is not written for me, first of all. Uh, And so, you know, I, I, I to try to and I've talked about this before in the past. So to try to act cool to me actually makes you even less cool. When I was a young kid and I saw older people, even in that day, in that time, when I saw somebody in their 40s, maybe at a concert, I would be like, what the heck are you doing here? Go home. 
This is my music. This is this is our thing. And come here to, to be with my parents. So I get it. I get it. You know. Uh, I am proud of the music I like. I surround myself with the music I like. Um, and uh, what can I say? That's that's the way I feel about it. Do I feel that the, today's music is as good as yesterday as as music of the past? No. And I'm I'm fine with that. I'm I'm fine saying that. I I mean, you know, uh, what can I what can what what can I do? So I don't really watch the Grammys anymore, which is which is crazy because I've been watching the I had been watching the Grammys since I was a little kid. But there was a certain point, and I would say it's been a good fifteen to twenty years, where it just was like, uh, this isn't really worth it anymore. I do still record it, and I fast forward to fast forward to the best parts, and um, there's few and fewer best best parts. Um, but I don't pretend to know most of the singers or groups or certainly the songs. Uh, that are the the songs of the year or the albums of the year, and once again, I, I make no apologies for that. I'm not trying to sound, uh, I'm not putting it down, but I also don't think that the the music of today is going to have the same kind of impact and staying power of music of the past. Maybe that's my own bias, but I think today music is it does not have does not play the same role in people's lives that it used to i think because of the um electronic and technology aspect to music now music is much more disposable uh than it was and so i don't know just how much into the soul and into the heart today's kind of sterilized manufactured music is as opposed to 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago when you heard real instruments and real singers and, uh, you know, lyrics about emotions and feelings. Today, it's music seems to be a lot about background, background music, background noise. And I don't get me wrong. There's some songs that, that have meanings to them, I'm sure. From what I understand, I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan, but I understand, you know, Taylor Swift writes a lot of songs about her personal life and maybe maybe too much sometimes, her breakups and things like that. So I get it. Hey, every generation, as Paul Simon said in um, his song Boy in the Bubble from the Graceland album, every generation throws a hero up the pop charts, and that is as true as it comes. So, you know. Um, I more power to to Taylor and SZA, S C S Z A SZA, and Miley Cyrus and uh, Olivia Rodrigo and Doja Cat and all the others out there. But I, but but one thing that struck me as I as I fast forwarded through and occasionally stopped on things. During the the last uh, Grammy uh, Award presentation a few weeks ago, was uh, it, it? It was a stark. Um, it was a stark difference. The Grammys, you know, they try to certainly be relevant and and hip and of the moment, but at the same time, they also try to, uh, you know, recognize and cater to. 
an older audience and an older generation, heritage artists as they are called now, legendary artists, whatever you want to call it. And so they they try to to mix the two at times, creating these these uh, you know duets of the old and the young. A very moving duet this year with uh, Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs. Luke Combs is a country singer who um, did a version of Tracy Chapman's "Fast Car" a song from like nineteen what eighty eight, and uh, which was a huge hit and broke. Tracy Chapman into a, a huge star back in the late 80s, big Grammy winner, um, and sort of helped uh, usher in. For a brief time, there was this unplugged, folkish alternative music coming out of the synthesizer, heavy, loud, big, uh, you know, uh, heavy metal, hair, British New Wave, uh, you know, dirty dancing, dance music. Uh, everything was so big uh, in the mid, early to mid 80s because of MTV that there was a rejection of that uh, to some extent toward the end of the decade. And that's when we had MTV unplugged in the late, um, you know, 80s, early 90s. And uh, there was, there was, for a time, there was this. Um, rejection of the big, loud music of all types and more of an organic and a uh, a simpler, stripped-down sound and almost a folk-rockish sound, a throwback to the folk era, and that's where Tracy, Tracy Chapman came in. And uh, she certainly uh, had her moment in the sun, and then she kind of just faded away. See, I don't know if it was deliberately or not, but... Um, so she came back here at like now age what sixty or sixty one. Hadn't seen her in many years. She had her her dreadlocks were all gray now, or at least you know touches of gray. And she really performed a moving um, performance of Fast Car along with Luke Combs, who who introduced this song to a whole new generation. Those of us who were there when it first came out, uh, I loved that album, her first debut album, and and that song as and many others on that album, her first album, the Tracy Chapman album, which which did win many Grammys. But uh, you know, there's a whole generation things that happened in the mid to late '80s. There's a whole generation of people in their late 30s, early 40s that don't even know what happened. They weren't even born, or if they were born, they weren't aware yet. And you have to sort of get used to that. But those of us who've been around for a while uh, take for granted as common knowledge. There's there's a whole generation now and a half, almost two generations, if you will, that uh, have no idea what the heck you're talking about. And that's what was stark to me. Uh, I always watch things with a critical eye. It's, it's as I've said many times. That's just that's my nature, uh, either personally as well as having, um, you know, been trained as a journalist. It's it's always I always look for the story. I look for the the meaning underneath things. I look at things with a little more of a critical uh, eye than than the average person. It's hard for me to just sit back. And relax and let something just happen and not have some opinion about it. I, I, I guess it's a, I mean, I, I, I suppose it's a curse. 
Uh, it doesn't seem like a curse to me, but I, I think I've got some friends who, you know, they just, they look at me like, what, why? Okay. So, okay. Get that out of your system. Who cares? You know? And to me, I'm like, do you see this? Are you seeing what's happening? Do you understand this? And they're like, Hey man, I don't know. What are you talking about? Who cares? It's just a music. It's just a song. And I'm like, no, no, you know, or it's just a, it's just an award show. Who cares? No, no. I, I mean, I, I've been so invested personally and professionally for most of my life into the pop culture that it is important to me. So I'm watching the Grammys while fast forwarding, as I said, periodically stopping when something looked uh, at least interesting or something looked recognizable. <laughs> and what I did um, look, what I did notice, and, I, and this is no great, once again, on its face, this is no great observation, but I do believe it's worth pointing out um, as we as the music continues uh, to become more manufactured, more auto-tuned, and things like that. That um, it seemed like the the newer artists, the the contemporary artists, the artists of today, when they perform their songs. There on the Grammys, there every song was a huge production. There were dancers, there were lights, and there were fog machines, and there were explosions, and there were monkey bars, and there were trapeze. I mean, I, uh, there was uh, you know just you name it, pyrotechnics and and. And wild outfits, and you, I mean, costume change. I mean, it was just everything, whether it was uh, SZA or, uh, or Dua Oompa Loompa, or no, that's Dua Lipa, right? <laughs> you know, it's funny, when, when Dua Lipa first came out, I jokingly called her Oompa Loompa. I never thought, and now, I mean, my gosh, she's one of the biggest stars on, uh, you know, on, in the world. Um, I don't really use the Oompa Loompa joke anymore because, hey, the joke's on me, right? She opened the Grammys. You know, it's some um, exotic and erotic, uh, you know, uh, monkey bars. I don't know what was going on. But every, but every, every, it seemed at least most, let's put it that way, not every. That's, you can't be so, uh, you know, finite on that. Almost every artist, contemporary artist, every song that they performed was this huge production. And then when they had the older artists on to do a number, whether it was Billy Joel or Stevie Wonder or Joni Mitchell and others, when they came up, when they came out, it was very simple. There were no great history, you know, uh, you know, histrionics or you know, history, histrion. I don't know what the word is. I'm trying to say here. There was no great big production. No great lights. There was no fog. There was no trampoline. There was no trapeze. There was no monkey bars. When Billy Joel came out to sing his new song, uh, "Turn the Lights Back On," it was Billy Joel with his piano. And a small string quartet. When Stevie Wonder came out to both do a video duet with Tony Bennett and then also sing um, a 
a part of the the in memoriam segment. It was just Stevie and his piano. When Annie Lennox came out to sing uh, her part of the in memoriam segment um, and sang "Nothing Compares to You," it was pretty much just Annie's voice. Uh, when Joni Mitchell came out, who's eighty years old now and not in the best of health, but she certainly has fought back from from several, uh, you know, almost life threatening um, medical ailments. Um, she was literally sitting in a chair, singing. But it was just her voice and just a small accompaniment, once again, of, of, of organic, real instruments, of, you know, violins and acoustic guitars. Billy Joel with just his piano. Um, Stevie Wonder with just his piano. And the emphasis was on the music, on the song, on the sentiments and the lyric, on the melody, on the instruments, and on the voice, and on the music, on the performer. And that, to me, is the biggest difference between music today and music of the last 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years, (laughs) is that Today, everything needs to be a huge, big production. It needs, the, the, the singer is almost lost amongst it all. The voice is certainly lost amongst it all. There's not any real instruments. It's all manufactured, sterile sounding, computerized instrumentation for the most part. And so that's, that's the thing. And that's the reason why I, I, I wonder or I doubt if today's music will have any real staying lasting power, because I don't know if that kind of music can really touch your heart or touch your soul or really get under your skin. Now, maybe if that's what you're raised on and that's what you listen to and that's what you know, then perhaps it does. Um, but not for me. Those, those, those performances to me felt just um, uh, like, I don't even know what was happening. Those were it wasn't that wasn't a song to me. That was a production. I like to listen to songs and music and melodies and lyrics. I don't need um you know my my the performers to be uh you know doing trapeze acts or or or, or portions of a Cirque du Soleil show. But that's where that's where popular music seems to be going right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was it was a strange show. Uh, like I said, I I wasn't all that impressed with it overall. Um, I read reviews online, and younger people that were reviewing it and watching it, oh, they thought it was fantastic. To me, what the Grammys seemed like overall, if I, if you want my overall impression, this year's Grammy Awards and a lot of the award shows, especially music-related award shows, um, they seem to be right now in in this age of ours, which is so about social media and 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 posts and views and likes and gossip it it seems like the grammys 
are now just a televised version of a senior prom. That's what it looked like to me. It was, if you watch the Grammys, it was basically, uh, it was all young women dressed up in their in their gowns with all their makeup and their hair. They were all uh, standing together, taking pictures of each other, gossiping, giggling, hugging, uh, you know, dancing with each other. I, I don't even know if there were any men allowed into the Grammys this year because <laughs> I didn't see that many on the stage or even in the audience. I don't know. It was almost as if like like a prom, like the, the, the girls uh, needed the guys uh, to go to the prom as, you know, as a date. But once they got there, they all congregated. And that's what you saw on the screen. All you saw in the audience, especially right up in the front where all the the women, where all the celebrities were, all the recording artists, most of the nominees were women, and 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 most of the shots of the audience were just of all women, and they were all dressed up, and you saw the stuff beforehand, and they're walking around, and between breaks, they're all taking pictures, and it looked to me like a prom, like a senior prom. When one of them won, the other ones came up there and hugged each other, and they giggled, and uh, you know they were they were they were, uh, you know, fixing each other's makeup and fixing each other's hair, and it just reminded me of a televised senior prom. <laughs> now, once again, I might be showing my age. I really can't help it uh, because that's what I am. <laughs> I, I Trevor Noah was the host. Uh, I don't know if this was self-imposed. I don't know if he was instructed to, but I don't know what he. I don't know what he represented. Uh, Trevor Noah is a comedian uh, who made his bones and has got his success and popularity on the Daily Show, which you know at least was known for little biting humor, hard-edged humor. A lot of times political, a lot of times not, but a little biting, edgy. Um, type of humor, and yet he was completely castrated. Now, I don't know if this was in response to uh, the disastrous, uh, you know, monologue by um, I don't even know what his name is. Coy Joe Coy was that his name? Uh, who completely bombed at the Golden Globes. Uh, but in today's world, I th- you, it, 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 it's it's it. They've been saying it for years, and I've been saying it for years. There's no need for a host on an award show, and and Joe Coy pro- proved that at the Golden Globes uh, last month, and now Tre- Trevor Noah proved that. I don't know what he represented. He came out at the beginning to give this monologue, and all he did, he sounded like a PR machine. He just was spouting out facts about every every artist, and it was a it was an up for people. He was just telling everybody in the audience how cool they were. He was running down the the statistics of how many records they've sold and how many um, views they have and how many downloads they have, and then he would finish that by saying, "And we love you, and you're great, and that was cool." cool. A far cry from what Rich, Ricky Gervais does at the Golden Globes, that's for sure. But we are once again in a time, in an era where you cannot, um, you cannot use sarcasm at all as a humor. Uh, 
which greatly curtails me. <laughs> um, you you are and always if you are a public figure like that, you are in constant fear of offending somebody somehow, some way. On with something you said, if you are not fawning over them. So I don't know. I, I mean, once again, I don't know if this was Trevor Noah's own idea, but he was, to me, he was, he was wasted. It was sad. It was, I felt either I felt sorry for him or felt sorry of who he is. If that's, if that's, if his idea was because he was just like a cheerleader, I, I it, it, he was unneeded. He was a guy who does have a sense of humor. I have to admit, I'm not. Was never a big fan of the Daily Show when he was on it, but uh, but I know what the Daily Show is about. But this was unbelievable. This uh, you had thought that this that his jokes and his comments were written by the PR people that that represent all of these singers. There wasn't anything close to any kind of edgy humor or sarcasm. It was just this. This over-exaggerated compliments. They could have easily had no host at all. Just have the presenters. As I've said on many occasions, there's no need for the host. You have the presenters come out, and they do their little banter, and they give the awards. Why do I need the host? What does the host do? If the host is not going to be funny, if the host is not going to bring anything original, if he's just going to spout out record sales and 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 download stream numbers and then and then say how great everybody is, that's not needed. They they and if they wanted to, they should have had someone like Oprah. Then get Oprah. Don't you don't need a comedian. Everybody now they all think that they need comedians to to host award shows. But then when they get a comedian, they don't they 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 castrate them. They don't they don't let them be themselves and let them be funny and let them do the type of humor that has made them popular that they would be considered to host it. Oh, Trevor Noah. Okay, this could be interesting. Not the way he did the show. Many big names are turning down these these shows. You know, the Golden Globe is the reason they got this Joe Coy, Joey Coy, whatever his name was, was because many Top-line comedians turned it down, like Chris, Chris Rock and others, because it's a, it's a thankless, no-win situation. And I can only imagine what Jimmy Kimmel is going to do at the Oscars next month. You know, Jimmy Kimmel is the friend, he's the white-bred friend of everybody in Hollywood. The only person that he hates is Donald Trump. There he has no problems going way overboard to criticize him. But my gosh, when, when there's anyone else on his couch uh, to do an interview, uh, you know, and when he, when he hosts the, uh, the Oscars, he may try at times to be edgy, but at the end of the day, the reason why he's been around for so long is he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't offend anybody. And so I don't know what we're getting. Once again, why do we need him there? To do what? You have the presenters. You give away the awards. So to me, the, 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 the show was, was just a, a mishmash. It, it, you know, uh, like I said, there were some interesting musical moments. The Tracy Chapman um, 
segment for me was was probably among the best. Um, but everything else was just it was just over the top. It was self serving. It was really reflective of our society today. Very narcissistic, very self serving. At the same time, you had others that were complaining. They were up there. Jay-Z was up there getting an award from the Grammys for a lifetime achievement. And then he was complaining and castigating the Grammy Awards, basically because his wife, Beyonce, Beyonce, if you will, um, while she is the most decorated Grammy award-winning artist in history, Beyonce, He's complaining that of all, she's got 32 Grammys, but she doesn't have an album of the year. And so he's saying that the Grammys are racist. Now here's Jay-Z getting some Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys. And then he's talking about his wife, who is the most decorated Grammy Award winner in history. And he's complaining that that she's been discriminated against because she hasn't won, of all her Grammys, she hasn't won a Best Album Grammy. Well, I got news for you. The Beatles didn't win a Grammy for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Led Zeppelin never won a Grammy. Bruce Springsteen has won several Grammys, but Bruce Springsteen has never won a Grammy for Best Album. He didn't win it for Born in the USA. He didn't win it for Born to Run. This is not about race. It's about quality. That's what awards are about. But in today's world, it's not about that. It's about distribution uh, and and fairness, and everybody gets an award. And and so the to me, I've been saying this for decades already. Award shows are outdated. Award shows are not even award shows. You don't even remember who gets the awards. The awards are, they say they're Grammy Awards, but it's all about the performances because it's become a show. It's not an award show. It's a TV show that, by the way, will give away an award. And now, today, when whoever wins, it's total narcissism. If you went up there and saw uh, Miley Cyrus's acceptance speech, it was the most self-absorbed speech. Go online and find it. It was one of the most self-absorbed speeches I've ever heard. And then she has to talk about when she won one at the end. Oh, and, I, and by the way, I don't have any underwear on. What? What? Now, Taylor Swift. Hey, I know. And once again, I'm not a big Taylor aficionado, but I certainly give her credit for what she's been able to achieve. There's no question. You cannot deny that. But here's Taylor Swift, who, who, with this one Grammy, becomes the only performer in the history of the Grammys to win four Album of the Year honors. Before that, there was only three people that had done it. Frank Sinatra, Paul Simon, and Stevie Wonder. Okay? That's pretty good, that's pretty good uh, class to be in. She broke the record. She got the fourth one with her latest album. When she goes up to accept the, the, the Grammy, 
That, but here's today's, this is today's world, folks. Rather than thanking someone or, or relating some story or, or, or being humble, you know what she did? She, she made a pronouncement of when her new album's coming out, the date. She basically did a commercial for her new album. By the way, I've got a new album called This is Coming Out on April something. That was her acceptance speech. In her acceptance speech, she did a commercial for her new album. Don't worry, Taylor. We'll know when your album's coming out in April. Believe me. Here's an opportunity to win an award, be gracious, maybe share some personal information and and personal anecdote about your life or about the album or about music or about the award, whatever it is. Thank some people. Be gracious, be humble. But in today's narcissistic brand world, you got to promote your brand. She started her acceptance speech by giving a commercial for her new album coming out. And that's what I'm talking about. What what's the need for this Grammys? I you know it's 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 it's, a, it's I guess it, it's a way for network television. It was, as I've said many times. Network TV these days is basically made up of award shows, sports, and uh, reality shows and game shows. That's that's basically what network television is now. It's those four things. And so for three and a half hours, and with a promise of all these star power, they show these award shows. But People watch them out of obligation. And from the, from the network standpoint, hey, it's a nice three-hour chunk that, that hopefully will draw people because our other shows aren't going to be drawing anything. And so when I saw this difference, this musical difference, today's music, so kind of sterile, big, uh, you know, self-engrandizing as opposed to some of the music of the last 30, 40, or 50 years, which was more of an emphasis, not all the time, I understand that, but there's more emphasis on the song, on the performer, not the performance, the performer, their voice. Their, their ability to play an instrument, perhaps. The music, the lyrics, as opposed to SZA basically doing her version of a Quentin Tarantino movie, killing all of her ex-boyfriends. <laughs> Once again, whatever. And it reminded me, and it also inspired me, and it's also leading me to suggest... That however old you are, you check out a new documentary on Netflix. It's called The Greatest Night in Pop. And for those of us who are around and remember the song We Are the World, which was a charity song written to raise money for people in Africa who were experiencing a horrible famine 
it was really a a moment in time. But what what this, and I'm going to talk about it. But what it what to me after watching this documentary, and and once again having been around for it, but now you see where we've come in the last forty years because we are the world. Uh, was released uh, at the beginning of um, of 1985, so it's it's pretty close to 20 years ago. Uh, you know, 19, whatever. But uh, it's it just goes, or I'm sorry, 39, 40 years. What am I saying? 40 years. It shows you the difference, and it really, for me, highlighted the same difference that I had seen watching the Grammys. It, it it really emphasizes and brought it home how music today seems very superficial, very disposable, very sterile, very manufactured, very soulless, very heartless. And here's this documentary about a flash moment in time, almost 40 years ago now, that not only featured some of the biggest names in music of the day at that time in December, March, April, May of, you know, uh, in 1984 and 1985, but also was maybe the last time where popular music really cared about something other than itself. Most pop songs today, most hip-hop songs today, most pop songs today are all about me, me, me. I mean, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's all about I want money, I want fame, I, I want a mansion. It's all about this materialistic, um, you know, just... Uh, you know, scavenger kind of um, mentality that was born out of rap in the in the eighties and nineties when when gangs and and bling and everything was glorified and now it's taken it to another level and that's the key message. The key message is, I want, I want me, me, mine, mine, me. I want. And so it really struck me about this new documentary that I would really urge you to watch. Whether you have no idea what it's about, you'll really learn something there. But if you if you were around and you remember it, it will offer some new insights and I think it will send a message. Because it was maybe the last time that pop music looked outside of itself. It was trying to help. It was trying to use its power, use its influence to bring awareness to a, to a, to a serious world problem and also raise money for it. And today, when we talk about raising money for a song, the person singing the song is talking about raising money for themselves so they could buy diamonds and bling and mansions and pools and whatever and cars as opposed to looking outside of themselves. So I really think that this was one of the last times uh, 
when the music industry as a whole cared about others. And rock music has that in its history. Now, granted, when 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 Elvis started uh, rock and roll in the early days, it was it was a it was a popular music. It was a rebellious music, but in the '60s, especially toward the end of the '60s, with the hippie movement and things like that, music started to take on social ramifications. That's when we you know when the the rise of Bob Dylan and and the Beatles. All we need is love, and the times are a changing, and like a rolling stone, and 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 music and social consciousness began to marry one another. That was never the case. You didn't really know what Frank Sinatra's politics were until like 1960 when he came out and you know campaigned for Kennedy. But you know there was a time where it was entertainment, and then and they were entertainers. You didn't know what their you know, and didn't really care what their social views were, what their political affiliations were. They were entertainers. That's what they were there for. But in the 60s and rock and roll, the the rise of rock and the rise of more activism with the younger people, with the baby boomer generation where they were in their teens and early 20s and going to college and things, music was so important as well as activism, and they the two married themselves. And so that's become a history, and we've seen that. So as I said before, we've seen then artists that have a social component in many ways to their music, starting with Bob Dylan and with the Beatles, and more recently, uh, you know, groups like U2 and things like that, who try to, to, who have an activism embedded into their music. So rock and roll certainly has that in its history. And it really came to fruition um, in many ways. Uh, one of the first, uh, uh, you know, charity concerts was done by an ex-Beatle, George Harrison, with the concert of Bangladesh. And then after that, John Lennon used to do some, you know, in, in the in his early, in his solo career back in the seventies before he he kind of retired. Um, a lot of there were there were other. Um, social issues where rock and roll would put on a, a concert to raise money and to raise awareness because they had such a high visibility and a high influence over the, their fans and over the people that listened and, and bought their records that they felt, you know, you heard this, the, the, you know, you, you always hear the phrase, you know, we can change the world. Now, it may have been naive, but at least the effort was there. There was, there was no doubt, look, hey, the rock and roll business in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s was filled with self-indulgence. You know, drug abuse, alcoholism, all that. Hey, look, I'm not, I'm not giving rock and roll from the last 40, 50 years a pass. There was self, but it was self-indulgence. They weren't bragging about it. They were having tremendous parties and living tremendous lives and living in tremendous estates uh, and, and throwing money away, but you didn't hear about it as much. Today's music, we brag about whatever we have. It's more of a bragging thing than a musical thing. All those rock stars had all those mansions and all those cars and all those drugs and all that other stuff that, 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 that pop stars have today. 
But when they put songs out, they talked about love or they talked about different, uh, you know, their, their own experiences. They didn't talk about, I'm writing this song so I could make money. I want money. Give me money. Yes, there is a song called Money. I, I get it. But my point is, from what I see, a lot of songs today from a lot of artists are just bragging about all their wealth or talking about how they want more wealth. And so me, to me, that sort of, you know, that turns me off. I'm, I'm, that's, that's bragging. I, I know that that's not something that I can relate to. So what was We Are the World? I, I urge you to go and watch this, um, this Netflix documentary. For those of you who don't remember, in the late 80s, in the mid-80s, Bob Geldof was a singer with a, a group from England called the Boomtown Rats. And uh, they were big in England in the late 70s and early 80s. They had a couple of hits here, but they never made it as big in the United States as they did in England. They were a big, they were kind of a, a new trailblazing post-punk band in the late 70s and early 80s. Their biggest hit here in the United States, you may remember, is a song called I Don't Like Mondays, which was written by Geldof after there was a story in the paper, in the, in the, in the U.S. paper, about an incident that happened here in the United States. And talk about, you know, how long this problem with guns and shootings in schools has been going on. In the early 80s, there was a girl somewhere here in the United States who went to school and shot some people. Young teenage girl. A girl, mind you. You don't hear about that as much anymore. Young girl went and shot some school, some kids at school. And when they caught her and they interviewed her, they asked her why. And in a very typical kind of screw you, rebellious, I don't care about anything, response this girl said they said why did you do this then she said well i don't like mondays <laughs> well geldof heard that line and it inspired him to write a song that was somewhat based on this incident and it became kind of a hit here in the united states but anyway in the mid 80s apparently bob geldof was watching a um, a documentary that was on british television talking about a, a an intense and serious famine that was happening in Ethiopia in in um, in Africa, and he was so angered and moved by what was happening and the famine that was being caused both by because of weather as well as the political realizations of politicians, you know corrupt and stealing money and not using whatever governmental funds to feed the people and take care of the people, but just, uh, you know, filling their own coffers. He was so angered. He was so militant. Had He had that, as I said before, that socialist activist view of music as a musician and as a person growing up with it that he called together some of his, at the time in the mid-80s, some of his new wave friends in the British 
music world, the, the ones who were of the moment. And he said, I'd really like to, to do something for these people in Africa who are starving. Maybe we could write a song and we can um, re- you know, release it with all the money raised from it to go to uh, these people in Africa because they are under this horrendous situation in famine. And so he got together with some friends and they wrote this song called Do They Know It's Christmas? And you can go on YouTube and look it up. There's a video of it. There's many of the biggest British new wave stars of the day all together in a big chorus singing this song with you know different solos with people so there's Bono of U2 and there's Boy George and there's uh George Michael and there's guys from Duran Duran and there's Phil Collins and there's Sting and there's all these people who were major British stars of the day and they call themselves Band Aid AID like a band aid but then aiding and they put this single out and it became an an immediate hit and it was right at the time when MTV was reaching its 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 highest popularity in the in 1984 and so between the exposure that it got on MTV worldwide you know visually seeing all these rock stars all these 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 pop stars of the day, these British, you know, second British invasion, new wavers singing this song about, you know, Africa and do they know it's Christmas and, and, you know, feed the world was the chorus feed the world. They still play the song at Christmas time too. It wound up being an immensely uh, successful single, number one single raised a lot of money and brought awareness to this terrible problem. Well, in the midst of that, people here in the United States, especially African-American activists, while they were happy that attention was being paid to this horrible situation in Africa, there was also a sense that, well, why aren't African-American artists doing more for the people of their heritage in Africa. Why are why are English white guys singing and white women singing about Africa when African American and African um, and, and and black artists aren't? So Harry Belafonte, a, a famous actor and singer and activist here in the United States, his big song was "Dale." And he was at the march, um, the Martin Luther King March. He was an activist for civil rights. And here we are in 1984. He was an older guy, and he's like, wait a minute. So he he was saying, we've got, we've got to do something as African-American artists to help. This is great what the British guys have done, and we need to do something too. And so... He called Lionel Richie, who at the time was huge. He was a big solo star. He had um, he had success with the Commodores. Then he went on his own, and he had that song, you know, Dancing on the Ceiling and All Night Long. And so he was at the height of his powers. 
And so Harry Belafonte went to, to Lionel Richie and he said, why don't you and Stevie Wonder write a song? Write this kind of an anthem kind of song, similar to what we are, what, what the Do They Know It's Christmas is about. And we will then put together a group of American artists and, and a great number of them, African-American, to raise money and awareness for the people that are starving in Africa. And so the way the story goes, according to this documentary, as I said, on Netflix right now called uh, the, uh, the Great Night of Pop, uh, A Great Night in Pop, the greatest night in pop, it's called. The greatest night in pop. Um, why don't you guys, you and Stevie write a song, and then we will work to bring together some of these artists, and we'll do our own version. And once again, now we've got MTV. We've seen that it can be popular, so we just have to have a really great anthem song to get people excited, and we'll bring together some a, a great mix of, of today's biggest American artists and do the same thing. And so the ball started rolling, and there was a, a very famous manager at the time called Ken Cragen, who was Lionel Richie's manager and many other stars. He was a big, big, uh, I think, Kenny Rogers. He, had, he was a, a well-connected uh, agent and manager for many of the big music stars of the day. And so they, they enlisted him since he had worked, you know, he was, Lionel Richie was his client. And so that's how the ball started rolling. Well, apparently, you know, Lionel Richie called Stevie, but Stevie wasn't returning Lionel's call. <laughs> so after a while, they wanted to get this thing done. You know, the, this, the We Are the, uh, or Do They Know It's Christmas came out at Christmas time. And so, you know, Harry Belafonte wanted this new project to really get started here. Uh, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to wait. Let's. There, there's momentum here. There's. There's awareness. Let's. Let's build on what, what the British artist did. What, what Band Aid did. Let's work on. Let's build on that quick. So, Stevie's not calling back. So Lionel says, "Well, why don't I call Michael?" As in Michael Jackson, who at the time is the biggest star in the world. Thriller is still dominating the charts. Michael is the biggest star bar none in the world. Lionel Richie was certainly a huge star, but Michael was at his zenith at that time. And so after some time, uh, a couple of weeks or so, uh, of stumbling around trying to build a song, they finally got a song, uh, at least the basis of a song. They got, they, they, they got a tune with a, sort of this anthem kind of sound to it, they got a tagline of we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives. It's true we make a better day, just you and me. Um, they're asking people to give and get involved. And so then the task is to put together, similar to the Band-Aid project, this group of artists that will bring attention to this song and this, this issue.
And the goal really was, you know, using Ken Craig and other people that were connected to say how, you know, who who are the hot people right now that will bring attention to this? As I said, in Band-Aid, you had some of the biggest new waivers of the day. You had, um, you know, Duran Duran and Boy George and Phil Collins and Sting and, 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 and many others, Paul Young and things like that. So the goal was how do we put together a similar group um, with, you know, American artists and African and, and, and African American artists. And so Ken Cragen, Lionel Richie, and Michael Jackson brought together Quincy Jones, who was one of the greatest producers in music history. Quincy Jones produced Michael's thriller album. So he and he worked with Frank Sinatra and you know he had he had credentials. He had heft. He had a ton of Grammy Awards. You know, Quincy Jones was one of the, if not the most, uh, you know, successful and influential and respected music people of the day in terms of certainly being a producer. So they got Quincy Jones to produce it. And now the job was to put together a group of major stars to record this song, both as a big chorus, and then, once again, just like Band-Aid, to have some solos by some of the most recognizable people of the day or, or of history of the time, recent history, to bring attention. And so that's what the, um, the documentary is really about then, is, 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 is the way the song was written and, and what it took to get all these people together Thankfully, you know, this was in the age of video. There was a video for the song We Are the World. It was one of the biggest, one of the most popular videos ever of the of the time. The the We Are the World song, the group was then called USA for Africa. Uh the song itself, We Are the World, wound up winning Grammy Awards and was the fastest selling um song in, in US history. Uh there was an album that came out later. Uh, of artists that included the single as well as songs that were never released by many of the artists on it i had i had the album i had the single in fact after i watched the documentary i have i still have my collection of 45s people might not know what a 45 is but the vinyl 45 the singles and i knew i had that that single that on columbia records i knew i had it and it's been 40 years since I've probably seen it or played it, but I know that I had it, and I have a couple of bins filled with 45s that are that go back God knows how many years, certainly more than 40 years. I was just, you know, in my late teens, early 20s. And so I knew I had it somewhere, and I became, I went on a mission. I went and got the bins. I'm sitting... Uh, you know, in the living room, my wife goes, you know, what, what, what what's going on? Because I'm now, I'm rifling through all my singles. Some of them are in the, the, the picture sleeve. Some of them are in the other sleeve. Some of them are just the, 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 the records. And I'm going through, and I'm just the way back in the good old days when I used to go through all those albums at the record stores. I had very fleet fingers, if you will, 
And sure enough, I knew what the picture sleeve looked like. I knew it was white. I remembered what it looked like. They showed it on the on the documentary, so I knew I had it. And I just was rifling through them, and then all of a sudden I saw it and pulled it out and said, another instant request. And there was my seven-inch vinyl single from 1985 of We Are the World, still in its picture sleeve, no creases. It was, I was so happy. So, I mean, they brought together some big names of the day as well as some legends. So you had Lionel Richie and Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon and Kenny Rogers and Tina Turner and Billy Joel and, as I said, Michael Jackson and Diana Ross and Dionne Warwick and Willie Nelson and Bruce Springsteen and Kenny Loggins and Steve Perry of Journey and Daryl Hall and John Oates and Huey Lewis and Cindy Lauper and Bob Dylan uh, and, of course, Bob Geldof and Ray Charles uh, and Lindsey Buckingham from uh, Fleetwood Mac and Harry Belafonte, obviously, and Smokey Robinson and the Pointer Sisters and Bette Midler and Waylon Jennings and some of the Jackson brothers and, and Latoya Jackson uh, and Sheila E. They really wanted Prince. Um, and the whole idea, which was very smart, they were like, how do we get all the, how do we get these heavy hitters together? How are we going to possibly get so many heavy hitters in one room at one time? They all have crazy schedules. They all live everywhere. They're all on tour. How are we going to do this? And someone came up with a great idea was that the American Music Awards, which was a big deal at the time. I was talking about the Grammy Awards. Well, there was the American Music Awards. It was a Dick Clark produced show. It was mostly fan-based and fan-voted on. So it was more populist than it was the Grammys, which is actually voted on by by groups of people in the music industry. But it was always but it was a big show anyway. It was a great it was a once again, it was an award show that got great ratings because all the stars of the day would go on it and they would get awards, they would perform. Well Lionel Richie was hosting this and it was going to be in LA. And so a lot of the stars of the day were nominated for awards. So they were going to come to the American Music Awards. So the idea was, hey, we've got, we're going to have some of the biggest names all in one place on one day. So after the American Music Awards, that's when we'll do this recording session. And so then it got pegged to the day of when the American Music Awards show was. And so it was like on January 28th of 1985. So as I said, you know, Michael and Lionel had a couple of weeks to get this song together, written, they needed to record the music, and then they had to make sure to reach out to all these people, try to keep it as big as a secret as possible, and, you know, and it leaked out to some extent, um, but after the American Music Awards was over, don't forget that's in L.A., so it was, you know, the, the, the event probably ended about 9 or 10 or so. Then all of a sudden, everybody was brought secretly, as much as they could, to uh, A&M Studios in L.A., and that's where they recorded it. And so you get to see this slice of a moment. You get to see some of the biggest stars of the time in 1985, which is interesting to see. You get to see some legends as well. 
many of the many of these people like Ray Charles and, and many others, Tina Turner now have passed away. You see a young Bruce Springsteen who was probably 35 or 36, and now he's 74. <laughs> uh, you see him at the height of his popularity and his powers, right? Right, literally finishing the first legs of his Born in the USA tour, uh, his biggest selling album and one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And you've got Cindy Lauper who had Girls Just Want to Have Fun, uh, you know, uh, at the height of her powers, and Huey Lewis, uh, and uh, and uh, you know Paul Simon with the the Graceland album, all these people. As I said, Lionel Richie that night was hosting the American Music Awards. You know he won like seven awards at that thing. Michael Jackson, the biggest star in the world. Stevie Wonder, one of the the legendary stars. Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson. Uh, the one name that's kind of odd is Kim Carnes. That's one people may remember her. She had a hit in the, in the early eighties called Betty Davis eyes. And she had a couple of hits. She's kind of the oddest one there. Interesting enough, they've got footage of Bob Geldof talking to all the stars who that were congregated to sing this song to explain the seriousness of it. Cause Bob Geldof went to Africa to try to really hit home as to why this was so important. And Quincy Jones, famously, on the door of the studio, wrote, leave your ego at the door, because they they needed to record this song in one night when everybody was there. And the the documentary was interesting because they show the clock all the time. And they started probably about maybe 10, 30 or 11 in the evening. And they didn't get done till about sunrise, 6 or 7 in the morning. They first recorded the entire chorus singing it and they're getting it down and and then they're deciding who's going to sing the the solos and what was interesting is that when this came out 40 years ago or so that was the big thing oh you know there was this sign about no egos at the door and it was this beautiful moment and all these artists came together and what's so revealing about this documentary is that we find out that not all the egos were left at the door and there was a little tension. It was a long night. And why is that person singing so long? And why, does, why don't I get a chance to sing? And so the, there, you had some of the biggest stars in the world, some of the biggest legends in the world, all in one room. And it was so interesting to see that dynamic. Yes, there was a kinship, but also their egos did get involved sometimes. Ultimately, the... the um, the the importance of why they were there and the cause overcame most of that. But it was interesting to see some fissures there. Um, and there's some great little anecdotes uh, that, that you will see and hear. One of the best lines is by Paul Simon, um, who said, there were so many stars in and, and, and chart-topping stars and big stars of the day who were dominating the charts at that moment in that one room. And Paul Simon said, you know, if they, if someone dropped a bomb in this room right now, John Denver would be on the top of the charts again <laughs> because all the other people would be gone. <laughs> so I would really urge you to see this as either a learning experience. If you're, if you're too young to remember it, 
you will get an intriguing insight as to some of the biggest stars of the day and what it took to put together this this project that really did good and really did raise money and brought awareness to this terrible issue. And at the same time, if you're a little older and remember it, it will give you some new insights into that event and also bring back some really cool memories. Like I said, for me, the first thing I did was run to find my U.S. And I had the album, too. I, 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 I found the album a couple of days later. But I remember that day, I, after, the, after, the, after I watched it, I, I went right to my, those bins and found my USA for Africa single. And so I would, I would really urge you to see this because I really think it does do more than just, uh, you know, it's more of a historical thing. There's certainly a history to it. As I said, you will learn from it whether you remember it or not. But I also think it really makes a statement about today's music. You know, soon after this, uh, there was then the Live Aid concert, which Bob Geldof then put together in July of 1985 which was on both coasts, in, both, in two countries, I mean, both sides of the Atlantic, in Philadelphia and in London, that brought together a whole host of artists that were, that were both English as well as American, some of the biggest stars in the world, Live Aid, which, then, which was literally um, you know, carried on MTV the whole day. It started in the morning and went till. Uh, you know, midnight. It was just a day full of music, the biggest stars in the world. Some that were on both of those songs, the Do They Know It's Christmas, as well as the USA for Africa, and some that were not involved but wanted to get involved with the cause. So there was David Bowie and Paul McCartney and The Who and Elton John and Madonna and so many, uh, you know, Phil Collins made uh, at Live Aid at Live Aid he was the only artist to have played at both sides he played at both concerts which was very cool he played at one got on a concord and flew and then played at the other one i'm trying to remember now which one did he play at first uh i think he played in Philadelphia first and got on the plane and then flew to England. Yeah, I mean, it was just crazy. But that's what people were doing. There was a sense of helping. There was a sense of commitment. There was a sense of, of taking the power of music and, 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 the, and the influence it had on its, on its followers, popular music of the day, and converting that into good of helping others. And I don't feel that anymore right now in music. To me, music, like our culture, sadly, is very selfish. So I think not only if you watch this Netflix documentary called The Greatest Night in Pop, will you learn something, either for the first time or rediscover it and, and, and learn some new things if you were around when it happened. But I think you'll also get a sense of it was that was a cool thing that they were doing that at least for one day all these stars did come together 
and work together. And there's rarely been such a, a, a collection of some of the biggest music stars in the world in one place like that. So that in its own is so cool to see. And you see the way they're, they're human beings too. You're, what's so cool, you get to see Bob Dylan struggling with how to sing this song. And Huey Lewis worried if he can hit the notes. And Cindy Lauper's jewelry clanging so much, they don't know where this sound is coming from. She has a great solo in the We Are the World song. But the, the recording engineers are saying, we're getting some, we're getting some interference, some clanging. Are people laughing in there? What's going on? And it turned out she had, you know, back in the 80s, she had all these bracelets and, 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 and uh, necklaces on and earrings and all this, you know, all this jewelry. When she was singing and shaking her head, all her jewelry was making noise. So she had to take it off. So there's some great anecdotes. You get to see them joking. You get to see them working at their craft. You get to see them insecure. You get to see them confident. You get to see them uh, copying attitudes, and you get to see them working together. So it's a, it's, a, it's a great moment in time. It's a great snapshot in time from a historical basis. But I also think it could be something to inspire people today in music to maybe stop thinking only of themselves, bragging about how much money they have, writing songs about how much money they have and how much more money they want, and maybe... Bringing pop music back down to a human element, not only in its subject matter, not only in its sound, real instruments, wow, that's a thought, but maybe also that it's time to give back. You have these mansions, you have these cars, you have this bling. And there's so many people in the world, around the world, third world countries, wherever, that have so little. Today, we've got all these different wars going on. We've got people in Ukraine, and we've got uh, you know, people in, 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 in Gaza. We've got other people around the world with, with different types of, of uh, look at the immigration, people running, you know, fleeing countries because of poverty. This world is far from in good shape, folks. We could use some kind of a rallying influence and power of the people because government isn't doing a great job of it right now. And so maybe we need some kind of a we are the world, do they know it's Christmas, band-aid, live-aid kind of effort, kind of event to help us remember what's important to help maybe make current music a little more relevant and at the same time people actually do something as a solution as opposed to waiting for others to do something. So I would urge you to go to Netflix and watch the documentary The Greatest Night in Pop. It will prove to you that we indeed are the world. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there.
And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 403. I'm Jim Toronto. I am here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of my mind to your ears.